Imagine a beautiful sunny day. You are floating in one of those reclining chairs in what seems like an endless pool. Nice cold drink by your side, maybe a book, and you are just drifting in and out of sleep. It's nice. But then, something disrupts your mini-utopia. Some crazed person comes running to the edge of the pool, and they say, I'm coming, don't worry! And they jump in the pool and they swim to you and they throw a life preserver around you and they say, it's okay, it's okay, I've, I've got you, calm down, I'm going to get you out of here. How would you respond? Probably be a little bit miffed. I was enjoying this nice sunny day. I'm not in danger at all. What, what's wrong with you? But consider how the equation changes in the event that you are actually in danger. There's a shark underneath you about to eat you, Jaws style. Or you just don't know how to swim and you're actually in the water, drowning. Then you relate to the rescuer quite differently. Knowing whether or not you are in danger will change how you relate to the rescuer. You don't see the rescue, if you don't think you're in danger, you see the rescuer is pointless and silly. But if you understand that you are in danger, well then, the rescuer is, is everything. The Savior is exactly what you need. Come to John chapter 5 this morning and the third sign in the first half of the book of John's. And what we'll discover is that Jesus utilizes a man's physical ailment to alert him to a deeper spiritual problem. Man, like many of us, is very earthly-minded, looking for physical healing. But Jesus is, as he is so oftentimes throughout this gospel, operating on a different level. He wants the man to know, you have a, a bigger problem than your bodily trouble. You have a sin problem, and your bodily trouble and the sufferings that you have endured in this life, well, they just are a preview for you of something worse to come. Jesus will use this man's ailment to teach him that holiness and right relationship with God is more important than temporary physical wholeness and well-being in this life. I tried to be a little bit creative and portable, and so I said our main idea is this. Wholeness without holiness is worthless. That your physical wholeness, having what you want in this life right now, without holiness, without right relationship with God, is worthless. It's worth nothing. It's like investing with Bernie Madoff in the mid-2000s. 
doesn't have value. Wholeness without holiness is worthless. And we'll find that Jesus, in this pericope, asks this one question that has different layers to it. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? So our exhortation kind of follows with that. And I I want to implore you this morning to desire to get well. To desire to be whole spiritually. To believe in Jesus, to obey his word, and to sin no more. Let me be clear here. I don't mean never sin again because we're all sinners. We're fallen. But to resolve that the trajectory of your life is to obey Jesus, to be holy, to try and honor him in everything you you do so that repentance is your constant practice. You are continually, when you discover sin on earth in your life, you are turning away from it and going back into the arms of the Father. I just wonder why we are so slow to repent. Think of that story of the prodigal son. He finally comes home to his dad ready to apologize. And once he gets there, what does he get? A robe on his back, a ring on his finger, and a kiss. Well, friends, let us be people who are quick to leave our sin, to quit eating with pigs in the mud, and to come into our Father's arms. He welcomes us. You don't don't need to wait to turn away from your sin. There's a robe and a ring and a kiss waiting for you. Oh, that you would resolve to get well. We'll work through the text in two parts. See, the physical problem and then the spiritual problem. Let's, let's pray and we will get to it. Father, we confess this morning that we need you. We need your mercy and your grace. We thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived, and died a substitutionary death, kind of death we deserve to die. Thank you that he rose from the dead so that those who have faith in him will be made like him and share in his resurrection life even now. Lord, we stand amazed at your love for us. Time and time again, we we have gone our own way, followed the desires of our hearts, rather than listening to your voice. We've made gods in our own images rather than acknowledging your self-revelation. Lord, forgive us these sins. Help us to see you for who you are. Lift our eyes away from all these worldly things. Not that they're unimportant. Focus us on that which is most important. Obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for you, our God. Hope in the world that will certainly come when Christ returns to make all things new. Help us to hear your voice this morning. Speak. Your people listen. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place. John in the past has told us which Jewish festivals are going on, and he will do so in the future. This one he doesn't identify for us, presumably because it doesn't help us to understand the point of the sign that's about to occur. So he's just at a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You'll also notice that anytime anybody goes to Jerusalem, they're always going up. Uh, this has not only to do with Jerusalem's geographic situation, but with its, the fact that it's the seat of the temple. It's the capital of the Jews. And so even if you come from somewhere that's of a higher elevation than Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going up to Jerusalem during this Jewish festival. And we learn that by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? And so we see Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's by these pools, which are quite, which are quite notorious. Uh, they've become a, a second place, if you will, uh, for disabled folks. So we have second places in our culture, right? Lots of people hang out in, in coffee shops or Starbucks, somewhere they, they go when they're not at home to just socialize and be around other people. And that's what these, these colonnades, these five colonnades around this pool served as. Colonnade, I, I, it's not a word I was super familiar with, but Think like porches that are covered to help shield you from the elements. And this became a popular place for disabled folks because they were able to be shielded from the elements. It was close to the sheep gate, so people that were coming into Jerusalem, one of the things you had to do as worshipers was to give alms to the poor. So you could collect some alms there. And it was believed that this pool had healing properties. That it would, it would bubble up. And you could be healed. So that's a good benefit, right? You've got some shade. You've got friends. You've got a way to have some income. And if you're quick enough, you might could get into this water and be made well. That's, that's what we learn from verse 7. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Kind of an awkward question. There's, there's no introduction, right? It's not, hi, it's, it's me, Jesus. Um, pleasure to meet you. I see that you're here on this nice day. Uh, would you like me to heal you? He doesn't, no pleasantries. Blunt, hey, do you want to get well? And the man doesn't respond with just a simple yes, or even a sarcastic, no, nah, I'm just, just hanging out here by this healing pool for no reason. He, he says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, Someone goes down ahead of me. Now, this tips us off to a, a superstition that existed. But we, we wouldn't have a whole lot of clarity about this superstition if it weren't for the work of a copyist down the road. And some of you will, will, will notice, if you have your Bible in front of you, uh, that John chapter 5 goes from verse 3 to verse 5. And it's not that 
the editors of your Bible did not know how to count. It's that verse 4, or what was verse 4, slipped into there at one point. Most notably with the uh, translation of the KJV. And so uh, I don't want to go on and on about textual criticism, but the KJV was built on a limited number of biblical manuscripts known as the Byzantine ones, and they, they're from later on, right? They're, they're not as old, so they're newer, which isn't as good. And so in these, a copyist had written, most likely as a marginal note, verse 4. And it eventually got squished up and was thought to be part of the scriptures for a while. But then as thousands and thousands more manuscripts became available through the process of criticism, we went, this is not at all original to John. The older and best manuscripts, they don't have this verse. And so we go, well, why would a copyist have made such an insertion? And it's, it's to bring clarity here. Look at what the verse says if you have it in a footnote down there somewhere. Or if you have the old KJV, you'll, you'll see that it says, they were waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time to stir up the water. Then the first one who got in the water when it was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment that he had. And so here's the superstition sitting by this pool is that an angel from time to time descends and stirs up or troubles the water. And then it's the big race. Whoever gets into the water first, well, they're going to be healed. That's the belief of the people at the time. And so we can see that the copyist tried to help us. Before we talk more about what that means, uh, two things I want to point out. First, this kind of thing should give us tremendous confidence in our Bibles, in their reliability, in reflecting the original autographs. There are very, very few places like this in your scriptures where there's any question about what the text should say. And where it is, you have footnotes. The authors are telling you, hey, this is not part of the Bible, or hey, we have question about this. It should give you confidence. that What you have is the Word of God. If you are one of those weird people who are interested in the process of textual criticism, uh, I commend to you, there's a white book in the back, at least it typically is. If it's not, you can find me, I'll get you one. It's called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. You can read it in an afternoon. If you want something more robust and, and substantial, I can, I can hook you up with that too. But we should have tremendous confidence in our Bibles. And the second thing is, is that this copyist's note actually is helpful right? It helps us to understand what the superstition was, at least in the, the minds of those sitting around this pool at the time. And even more helpful, I don't know about more helpful, that's an overstatement, but archaeological evidence also helps us to understand what's going on here. So you can actually go and see where these pools were. And you'll notice I said pools in the plural because it turns out this is two pools. You have two pools right next to each other, and you can see where the colonnades were kind of built around. There were four around the edges, kind of like a square. And then there was one in the middle between the two pools. And underneath, deep under the ground, these two pools were fed by natural springs. So what would happen with these deep underground natural springs is every once in a while, from time to time, the currents would intersect in such a way to cause the water to be troubled, to be stirred up. 
On top of this, ancient witnesses say that the water had a red tint to it. You've probably seen this in, in places where minerals get into the water and they can color it in some ways. And so when you put all that together, right, you've got, got red water that randomly, when you just look at it randomly, bubbles up and stirs up. You understand where this kind of superstition came from. Special water, it's got medicinal purposes. It can make you better. An, an, an angel must be stirring it up. See, it was, we can trace the superstition, but, but before we kind of look down our noses at those, those primitive first century people, they're so silly with their superstitions, we should stop and think. We're pretty superstitious ourselves. Have you ever stayed on the 13th floor of a building? I mean, probably, but it's not labeled as such, right? 85% somewhere in there, I can't remember the number exactly, of the elevators in our country, if you get on them, they're going to go 10, 11, 12, 14. And it's not because the makers of the elevator can't count. It's because 13 is unlucky, right? No 13th floor, no 13th button on the elevator, and hey, you better not go out on Friday the 13th. It's bad luck. It's bad juju. Or what about sports fans? Sports fans are really bad about this, right? You know, they're watching the game. I, I sit down in this particular place, and the team does really well. It gets about midway through the game, something bad. i got to move to the other side of the room, get the feng shui right. The team's going to start to do better. Uh, I actually heard a story, and I didn't believe it was real, uh, but then I did some Googling and, and found out this is suggested by life coaches, where if somebody that you have in your life is impacting you negatively in any way, uh, what you do to block their negative energy is you, you can get a picture of them that you might print out on the computer or on your phone or whatever, and, and you put it into the freezer. You put them on ice. It calms down that negative energy. I thought about trying it. It sounds interesting. You put them on ice. Or maybe my favorite was last year, if you guys followed the NFL at all, there was a Chiefs fan who got really famous. He paid all this money to go to a playoff game. They fell behind by a bunch in the first half. And so all of his friends said, this is your fault. Go home. And he got in his car and he went home in Kansas City. Nobody's on the streets. Everybody's watching the game. Goes home and guess what? The Chiefs come back and win. And everybody credits him. You, you did the right thing. You're a superstitious people. We often... Some of those are funny, right? Um, don't open an umbrella indoor, carrying a rabbit's foot. But oftentimes we rely on superstitions. I wonder, what superstitions are you prone to believe and rely on? I think many contemporary people fall prey to this one. The superstition that Science is an exhaustive explanatory power that disproves the existence of God rather than a simple method of study. Or, or perhaps you believe the superstition that you can create your own identity apart from reality. Or maybe you believe the superstition that your sin's not really that bad. And that, hey, you're really a good person. And so God doesn't need to judge you. 
You'll be all right. Or maybe you're, you're someone that's fallen prey to that hellish prosperity gospel, which says, uh, believe hard enough and you'll get exactly what you want. Believe in God enough and you'll, you'll get what you need. I can't tell you how many people have fallen for this lie, right? If you're, if you're poor, it's because you haven't believed God enough to give you a breakthrough. He wants to. He can't, though, because he just needs you to believe. Or if you're sick and you want to be made well, well, it's because you haven't believed enough. You just got to believe enough and you'll be made well. Do you know how many people have died believing that lie, feeling guilty? I want to I get better from my cancer. I want to get, get better from this, this heart ailment that's, that's killing me. I need to just believe a little harder. This is a hellish lie. It, it is, it's superstition. We are prone to believe anything. But friends, we must believe the true things. Do not put your faith in superstitions. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He has proved His person and His power through His life and ministry and through His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ really did live. He really did die on a cross. He really did raise from the dead. N.T. Wright has written a wonderful book on this matter called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Go, examine the historical evidence. Many have become Christians by doing so. The best explanation for what happened to Jesus of Nazareth is that he was crucified on a cross and raised bodily from the dead. It's not that he just lives on in our hearts in some kind of ethereal way. It's that he lives truly. He is alive. We ought to believe in him. Not our superstitions. This man has a lot of faith in his superstition, a lot of faith in this water that bubbles up. He, he hears Jesus' question, do you want to get well? And he, he, he doesn't know who he's talking to. Right? It's like, uh, yeah, I do want to get well, but the problem is I can't get into the water quick enough. So, so I don't even know your name, but here's the plan. If the water bubbles, perhaps you could help me Get into the water quick enough. Right? When the jets in that giant bathtub come on, you take me down, three-legged race style. Put me in. I'll get better. And Jesus does more than this man even knows to ask. That's what I love about our God. He's always doing more than we know or that we even know to ask for. He gives us what we would want if we knew everything he knew. Do you want to get well? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when, when the water's stirred up, but I'm coming and somebody goes down ahead of me. Verse 8, Jesus told him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man, this isn't all the Jews, this is Jewish leaders. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Well, who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Notice the repetition here on uh, take and walk, pick up and walk. It's repeated over and over again. If you just work through 8 through 13, you'll underline it a bunch of times. Pick up and walk. It's in Jesus' mouth. It's in the man's mouth. It's in the Pharisee's mouth. And what John is underscoring for us here is the power of Jesus Christ to heal. Jesus speaks. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the molecules in this man's body change. 38 years, he cannot walk, and in an instant, at once, immediately, straight away, he is standing, he is holding his mat, he is walking around. Such is the power of the Word of God. Jesus has power. He performs an incredible miracle. And I think sometimes we just look at these miracles, we're so familiar with them that we're bored by them. Yeah, 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 Jesus heals. I mean, we need to, we need to climb inside of these stories, these events that actually happened, and be awed by them. The power of Christ should slacken our jaws and widen our eyes. This is incredible. No one does this. This is not ho-hum. This is the new creation breaking in to our world. This is the messianic prophecy of Isaiah beginning to be fulfilled. Isaiah 35, 4-6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is rolling back the impact of sin. He's giving us a trailer for what it will look like when he comes to make all things new. He tells the man, get up and walk. Makes him physically whole. And the response of the Pharisees is not to be awed and say, this is incredible. But to get cross. Who did this? Who did this healing This man couldn't walk for 38 years, but now he's walking, and do you know what? He's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. That's against the rules. It's not not really against the rules, right? And look in the Old Testament, it's not against the rules to to carry your mat. This is a man-made tradition that is 
codified in the Mishnah for us. I think there's like 619 of these. There's a bunch of laws that they add on to what God's word says. And so this is just a tradition that you wouldn't carry uh, something burdensome on the Sabbath. And so the man's not breaking God's law. He's not breaking the Sabbath. He's breaking the, the laws that the Jews have put around the Sabbath. The idea was, um, if we have kind of more extreme laws than the law that's actually there, then we'll never actually break the real law. With me? And so, he's not even actually breaking the law here. But, but these Jewish leaders, instead of being awed at Jesus, awed at this man being healed, well, they're focused on their own laws. They're, they're focused on themselves in some ways. Can't, can't see the forest through the trees here. And, and this is actually sowing seeds for what's going to happen in the next section where Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father, to be God himself. Right, we, you read that in verse 16. Therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus is intentional here. He could have healed this man on a Saturday. I guess that is the Sabbath. Could have healed this man on a Friday or on a Monday or a Wednesday, but he chose to do it on the Sabbath day because he was tipping over that first domino that would lead him to the cross. He's provoking the events that will lead to his crucifixion. Jesus intends to go and to die for the sins of you and me, for the sins of a rebellious people. And he wants to bring attention to his identity, to who he is, God in the flesh. And this section really is, is a whole lot of setup for that teaching. But we'll notice the Pharisees don't seem to be interested in the miracle. They're interested in who this lawbreaker is. And so they ask, who is it that did this to you? Who made you well? And we read in verse 13, the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now I know, I know Jesus has a, a rep for slithering out of difficult situations. That scene in Luke 4 where people are, they've taken him to a cliff because again he's claimed to be God and they're going to push him off the cliff to his death. And he just kind of goes ghosts, right? The, the thing says, uh, Jesus passed through their mist and went away. I don't, I don't, just out of the situation. Wasn't his time to die. So I get that Jesus can kind of make a quick getaway. But I can't help but wonder what happened here. I mean, the, the text tells us because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. But if I'm this man... And I've lived 38 years, which is a whole lifetime. That's, that's like life expectancy in the first century. A whole lifetime without being able to walk. Immediately when I stand up, like I'm looking, who are you? What's your name? After I've been walking or holding my mat, I'm looking, where is that guy? I need to find him. I need to learn about him. But we don't see that. It doesn't seem very interested in finding Jesus. He's happy to be whole, But he's not, not worried about holiness. He's happy for the miracle, but he's not concerned at all with the man who performed it. Which means he's missed the point. He's, he's healed, 
but he doesn't know who Jesus is. And so his, his greatest need is still unmet. Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? And as he does so often in this gospel, he speaks and people don't really understand. Right early on, he says to, to the Jews, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. They think he's talking about the building, he's talking about his body. He's talking to Nicodemus. He says, truly I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus tries to figure out how a person can crawl back into his mother's womb to be born again. He talks to the woman at the well. He says, I will give you living water. And she says, how are you going to do that? You don't have a bucket. He tells the disciples, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, y'all, who, who smuggled him food? Somebody, not us? What does he have to eat? They're missing it, and the same thing is happening. Do you want to get well? And the man thinks immediately of his physical condition. But the question Jesus asks in verse 6 is operating on a different level. Jesus' primary concern, do you want to get well? is not primarily with the man's paralysis but with the man's sinfulness. That's made all the clearer for us in verse 14. After this, Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, Look, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. You see what's going on here. Jesus is using this physical reality to teach a spiritual lesson. It's it's really neat. He, He wants the man to know your physical condition was bad, but it wasn't your primary problem. Sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. It's kind of a reverse of the situation we see in Mark's gospel. You probably know the story. There's a paralytic and his, his buddies lower him down through the roof because the building's so packed and Jesus is in there teaching. They lower him down. And the expectation, everybody expects Jesus to heal this man straight away. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And you can kind of sense this tension in the air where, especially from the, the person that's paralyzed, kind of like, thank you, not exactly what I was looking for. Like when you get a gift on Christmas and you open it up, you're really excited and it's that, that awful sweater. Thanks! Not exactly what I wanted. And then Jesus perceives the thoughts of the religious leaders in the room and their question is this, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus answers and Verse 8 of Mark chapter 2. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. 
So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus is is showing who he is. He's the God who has the power to forgive sins, which is harder than it is to cause a man to walk. So to hear, he he said, do you want to be well? Easy. Get up, walk. And now he's saying, do you want to be well? Go and sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. He's pressing this man to a decision. This man has the miracle, but he's not put his faith in the Messiah. He has the healing, but he's not let go of his sin. Jesus is saying, you need to decide. Is this physical wholeness enough for you? Or will you turn from your sin and really be made well? Here's the question I want you you to grapple with. If the Lord Jesus, in this next moment, would remove from you your suffering, your, your pain, whatever it is that is causing you affliction, healing a loved one, if in this next moment Jesus would remove from you your suffering but left you in your sin, Would you be good with that? That's the question before the man. And we don't don't actually see how he responds. It is interesting. Jesus here explicitly connects the man's healing. See, you are well again with his urgent need for moral reformation. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. This is easy to miss, but Jesus seems to be implying that the man's physical ailment of 38 years actually came into his life as a consequence of sin. I want to be clear. The Bible tells us in many places that you will suffer and it won't be connected to your sin. Right? We think of Job who is righteous before the Lord and he loses everything and he's suffering and his friends come and offer the not so great counsel. Hey, you must have done something wrong here, Job. You must have wronged God in some way. So, so you need to repent and that's just not the case. Or uh, we can think of the man born blind in John chapter 9, which we read earlier as our scripture reading. Who has sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. Also think of Luke 13. This tower falls on people when they die. And some seem to think it's because they're worse sinners than everyone else. And, and Jesus says, Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so you can't always draw... a 
point A to point B, this sin, this suffering. But there are occasions in Scripture where we see sin tied to immediate consequences. Narrative example, I think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They lie to the Holy Spirit and they die immediately. Or of Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, don't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. The reason that some of you are sick and some of you are dying is because you've been partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so there, there are times when our suffering is intimately tied to our sin. This seems to be such a case. Jesus says, in the same way your sin brought about your physical suffering on earth, if you persist in your sin, you will suffer far worse in hell. Sin is so ugly and so heinous that all the suffering in this world pales in comparison to it. It's why the the imagery when, when, when Jesus speaks of hell is so vivid. Complete darkness. Flames that don't go out. How do you have darkness if there's flames? Metaphor. He's using the, the most gripping illustrations he can to describe the awfulness of God's wrath towards sin. Those who persist in their sin and say, no God, you created me, you created this world, you deserve my allegiance, I'm not giving it to you, I run my life, I define me, not you. Well, God prosecutes for treason. His justice rolls down like waters through all eternity. The punishment fits the crime. This is what Jesus is warning this man about. Stop sinning. Put your faith in me and live or something worse is coming for you. Friend, hear, hear the word of the Lord. There is something worse than all the suffering you will ever experience in this life. And if you do not repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, it will happen to you. You might believe in your superstitions. God's not that mad at me. I can make myself well. But friend, believing something sincerely doesn't make it true. Truth corresponds to reality. And the truth here is, you do not let go of your sin and come to the open arms of the Father. There is something indescribably terrible coming for you forever. Jesus warns this man 
sin no more. And then we read, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Again, we're not certain about the man's spiritual standing at the end of all this. He doesn't believe like the royal official. It's conspicuously absent. But he does sell Jesus out. So, so put these pieces together with me. This dude is healed by Jesus, doesn't thank Jesus, doesn't look for Jesus, doesn't really know Jesus' name until Jesus finds him. Then when he figures out who Jesus is, he sells Jesus out. I got to tell you, this guy seems like a jerk. So what qualifies him to be healed? There are a multitude of people that are disabled around this pool, and Jesus comes to this guy and heals him. Why? Why him? I mean, as it relates to faith, this guy is completely disqualified. The only thing that qualifies him is his need. Such is the case with all of us. Jesus comes and has mercy on this man, not because of anything good in him, but because of who Jesus himself is. He is gracious. No one, not one of us, has earned the grace of God. Not one of us deserves to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our friend. Not one of us deserves peace with God. All of us are rebels. And yet, Christ died for us. His grace is greater than all of our sins. His mercy knows no boundaries. He forgives all who come to him in faith. The only thing you need to be made right with God is need. To acknowledge, I can't make myself right with you, God. I need a Savior. I need rescued. And only you can do that, Jesus. Perhaps you came here this morning and your life could be described as a metaphorical lounging in a pool chair beneath sunshine and blue skies. I want you to know there is a storm on the horizon and you will not escape it. There is only one who can rescue you. And he says to you this morning, he asks, do you want to be made well? Let's pray. Father, we are selfish people. We are a sinful people. But by your grace, 
You have changed our hearts. Caused us to believe in the Lord Jesus. We are a messy people, but we are yours. Thank you that you love us as much on our worst day as you do on our best day. We thank you that we didn't earn your grace and we can't keep earning it. We thank you that we didn't initiate and we don't continue our salvation. We thank you for the wonderful truth that you save us. And that all we must do to be made well is to believe in Jesus. To sin no more. To turn away from listening to our hearts. And to come home in obedience to your word. Where there waits for us a robe, a ring, and a kiss. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.